This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Our first reading is from the Hebrew Bible, the book of Exodus, chapter 32, The Golden Cow. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods, so that we will go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off their golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and he made a molded calf. And then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought some peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, and with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The next reading is from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name, for in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. 
Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. The third reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 23. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your road and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint me, my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel portion is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, the parable of the wedding feast. Please stand as we will honour the King as he teaches us. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, and he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. They were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and he burned up their city. And he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways, and they gathered together all whom they found, both good and bad. 
and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, we are your children. We are your students. We long to learn from you. We pray that you would teach us and we ask that um, you would give us the grace to put into practice what we learn. Come Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, and fill this place. Teach your disciples. And for those of us who don't perhaps know you fully, we pray that uh, you will deepen our relationship. That each one of us can know you in a better way, in a more excellent way. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake, amen. So this evening we have a um, feast, you might say, of riches. We have four passages of scripture and uh, these four passages uh, implicitly or explicitly have a number of things in common. And uh, perhaps most obviously, all four are about a banquet. Yes, all four are about a feast. They're also, more importantly, they're about God himself and about the kingdom of God. And by the kingdom of God, I don't mean the place we go to when we die, but I mean, uh, to use it as Jesus understands it, yes, what is it like or how are we to live, yes, in the presence of a powerful God? Yes, what does he require of us and what does he uh, want to do in our lives and in, uh, and in our midst? And uh, each of the passages, there's an invitation. And that invitation, I think, uh, should ch challenge and speak to each one of us. And as a result of the invitation, we have to make a decision. So let's start, shall we, with the most popular. Yes, the thing that, uh, the passage that so many of us love the most and we're very familiar with. This is Psalm 23. Uh, indeed, a beautiful passage and a passage that uh, brings comfort uh, to millions of Jews and Christians and sometimes even folks who are not believers, uh, especially in times of uh, difficulty and in times of trouble. And the Psalm, uh, indirectly, it's about a king because kings in the ancient Near East were known uh, for two things, maybe, maybe more. They were known to be lawgivers, et cetera, et cetera. 
but they were also called shepherds. Yes, very popular uh, way of describing uh, ancient Near Eastern kings. And uh, they were known for throwing banquets, for being hospitable, for being host. So here we have a a marvelous, marvelous uh, passage in which uh, we have two images. And these two images are going to describe for us or tell us what God is like. Now, again, in the ancient Near East and uh, with the, in the context of the Hebrew Bible, they don't do theology uh, as we do it. Or they don't talk, perhaps, in the way that we do today. If someone asks you, what is God like or who is God, we would say he's generous or we would say he's loving and he's caring, so on and so forth. They're going to say the same things, but they're going to use word pictures yes, to better, uh, to better get the message across. And so in the first half of the psalm, yes, the way God's love and care, yes, the way uh, he um, watches over his people, God is going to be described as a shepherd. Yes. So the Lord is my shepherd. Yes, he leads me, he makes me lie down, he leads me, he restores, he guides. Uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. So in the first four, four verses, God is feeding, yes, leading his people to food. He's leading them to water. He is protecting them. But in the second half of the psalm, from verse five downwards, the image re-switches. It's no longer the picture of a shepherd. It's the picture of uh, someone throwing, you, uh, you might say, a- an incredible feast, a meal of, uh, of, in- of uh, incredible generosity. Um, you prepare a table before me, In the presence of my enemy, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. And so again, this is an image of who God is. A picture, yes, of how he cares and he loves loves his people. And in both images, yes, the shepherd and the one who is providing uh, this uh, very uh, generous, generous uh, table. In both uh, settings, it, we have difficulty because when we talk about the Lord as our shepherd, it's a psalm that was written for the Judean desert, not the Welsh hillsides or, the, um, uh, or perhaps Scotland, New Zealand, where we so often think of uh, uh, the places where sheep are being raised. Southern Missouri, for example, another example. It's da- this is a Psalm of David. He writes it in the desert. Food is scarce. Water is scarce. It's dangerous for many different reasons. And yet the Lord is shepherding, protecting, watching over his people in a place of scarcity. And in this scarcity, 
the psalmist can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I will lack nothing. This is not the land of shopping malls and Whole Foods and Amazon, yes, or the land of uh, discount stores where everything is so cheap and easily available. Again, this is the desert. And uh, the second half of our psalm, it tells us that in the presence of my enemies, in the presence of conflict, in the presence of difficulties, God is going to vindicate me. God is going to provide for me. And he's going to enable me, it says here, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we have this context really of worship. Now in all of this, yes, all of this is the reason that so many people, so many of us love this psalm because we can turn to this in the time of trouble. But sometimes the tendency might be to read this psalm and other psalms, especially when we get into when we get into a few scrapes and say, okay, Lord, you're my shepherd, now I want you to provide for me. And I want you to, to give me that, uh, you know, the, that provision uh, that I need. And it is true, God cares for his people. God does care for us and he cares for our needs. But it's not... Again, it's not an ATM machine. I'm going to put the card in and out will come money. Because this is a psalm about trust. And the invitation here for all of us is to enter into a relationship in which we can trust the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, meaning I'm letting him take control of my life. Yes, I want that banquet, I want that provision. I want all the good things that God has for me. But you know what the problem is with that? The problem with that is we can ask God, supply our needs, supply our needs, supply our needs, and God often does, and he brings a miracle, and yet we go on with our own agenda. We continue along our merry way, and nothing changes. Again, God does care for us, but he's inviting us into, he's inviting us into this relationship in which we trust him and allow him to take control of our lives. And in the context of that relationship, yes, we can say, you know, I don't, I lack nothing. Now, the issue is at the end, the issue is that some of us can't accept that invitation because the end of the day, many of us have a hard time believing that's really true, that God can supply my needs and difficulty. Sort of no different than the people of Psalm 78 that generation, that rebellious generation in the wilderness that said, can God really, yes, can God really make a feast in the desert? You've gotta be kidding. And so often, it's not only our doubts that get in the way, 
our doubts about who God is and his goodness. But a lot of times the biggest enemy of faith is our anxiety and our fear. And these anxieties and fears, they get in the way. And they keep us, right, from fully, fully entering into that place, right, where we really can say, the Lord is my shepherd and I can live in the house of the Lord forever. The second passage, also there's an invitation. It's an invitation to a banquet. And that banquet uh, that we read about in Isaiah 25, it's very interesting because God is inviting all of the nations, he's inviting, doesn't mean they will all come. Yes, he's inviting all of the nations to a banquet. Now, in a minute we'll read this, we'll talk about the Sinai passage, the, the passage at Sinai. And according to the Jewish understanding, which by the way I think is reflected in the New Testament and then the, the Psalms, God invited all the nations of the world to come to Sinai and to receive his commandments and instruction and his guidance and his direction. And in the process, what, would they, what does Israel, uh, Israel's the only one that accepts, but in the process, what does Israel do? Israel uh, comes under God's kingship. Yes, they acknowledge that God is their king and uh, they're going to um, allow him to rule and reign over them. And they're going to do this because God brought them out of the land of Egypt and they saw how uh, good and merciful uh, he was to them. So all of the nations are called the Sinai and we understand that the nations of the world say no, but only the Jewish people say yes. And now we have a reversal. God once again is calling all of the nations to, to, not to Sinai, but to another mountain. And the mountain is here behind me in Jerusalem, not very far from here. It's called Mount Zion. Yes, um, holy Mount Zion. And uh, it's on this mountain, yes, where we have this um, picture of God being king. Remember again, this is about God's kingship. So here, in the, before we read uh, Isaiah 25, at the very end of verse of Isaiah 24, it says, the moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. So God is a king and he's reigning. And what do kings do? Yes, they throw banquets. They throw big parties. And this time, all of the nations, not just the Jewish people are gonna respond. Everybody's going to come. And uh, what's gonna happen at this banquet? It's not merely that God is going to uh, exhibit his generosity uh, in the way that he is going to take care of our personal needs. Yes. I need money for the car payment. My daughter needs to find a husband. <clears throat> you know, my, uh, uh, my leg 
has cancer, whatever it may be, it's not that only we will have these, uh, God will uh, address those needs and uh, provide for us. It's something bigger, yes? Something that we fear uh, even more than uh, the inability to pay the rent at the end of the month. Because at this feast, which is going to be incredibly luxurious, rich food for all people, aged wine, yes, the best meats, literally in Hebrew it says marrow, yes, again it mentions the finest wine. It's expensive, yes, very expensive. People in the ancient world rarely ate meat and only on, the, on occasions in which there was gonna be a feast or some, some kind of rejoicing. And what is the Lord gonna do at this banquet? He is going to destroy the shroud that enfolds the nation, the sheet that covers uh, all peoples. He will swallow up death forever. Isn't this a beautiful image? Usually you think of the earth as swallowing us up, yes? We, we go into the grave and we disappear. Within one year, we become virtually nothing, if not sooner. So instead of the earth swallowing us, God himself is gonna swallow death. Yes, and death is the very thing, yes, that um, imprisons us, keeps us fearful stops us oftentimes from living and really enjoying God and, uh, and enjoying life as he uh, wants us to. And Hebrews chapter two tells us that uh, uh, if we don't, uh, if we're not free from the fear of death, we're imprisoned by the devil. And so here the king is throwing a feast and there's an invitation. But there's, you know, the invitation is, you might say, we have to make a choice. We have to accept the invitation. And uh, here, uh, as we go a little bit later, it's almost, again, the context of worship. It says, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from uh, all faces, he will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Now, how do people respond? The people are gonna respond by saying, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord, we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Yes, so again, the invitation is there, the banquet is there, yes, but it demands a trust. It demands this ability, yes, with God's help to put away our anxiety or our fear, in this case about dying or about death itself and not to dread you know, the thought that perhaps our life means nothing. Perhaps, you know, as soon as I die, I will be forgotten. And I've lived my life, you know, for, for no good purpose. And uh, none of this counts. You know, and life is simply a black hole. 
Now, not all the nations accept because it's very interesting. It says the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled under him as straw is trampled down in the manure. It says God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground to the very dust. So not all nations, you know, accept the invitation. Not all nations can trust. And here's Moab, which I think is, I don't think God is only singling out Moab, but singling out other cultures and nations or people who can say, wait a minute, I'm not sure we can go along with this. We don't believe this. You know, we're not sure about this. You know, we have our own system. We have our own, you know, pride, whatever it may be. We've got our own, we've got these fortifications. You know, we're taking care of ourselves. We're looking after ourselves, yes? We're not going to acknowledge you. We don't think it works. So God the King issues the invitation to the nations. And some don't accept, and others do. Others can say, we trust, and then they can rejoice. And of course, We now come to story number three. And story number three is also about a banquet. But this banquet's not so good, and it's not so positive. Yes, it's the the opposite. And uh, this is, uh, of course, uh, Exodus 32. Moses uh, is up on the mountain. Uh, And by the way, Moses is, interestingly enough, is eating in the presence of the Lord. And so we have this connection um, between worship and food that runs all the way through the Bible, I believe from uh, Genesis to Revelation. Moses is on that mountain. And the people say, where is he? He's left us all alone. We have no leader. You know, things aren't right here. Aaron, fix this situation. We're anxious, we're fearful. We are starting to doubt, yes? We are starting to doubt. So what does Aaron do? Aaron builds a golden calf. Now, the golden calf maybe is fairly misunderstood because the golden calf while it is an idol, it is supposed to be an image of the one true God. Some Bible translations talk about that Aaron builds, makes gods, but actually the word Elohim can be translated as simply as God. And since there's only one golden calf, uh, not many, and since people say this is the God who brought us out of Egypt, it would be a fair assumption, and here I quote a a, um, fairly well-known Lutheran uh, Bible scholar, I can't think of his 
maybe I'll think of his name at the end because I, I want to um, give him credit. Uh, I think you all know how this works, don't you? When you, you read a really good thought from somebody, you tend to quote the person. Uh, but you know, a few sermons later, you can say, you know, I've been thinking. Yeah, I've been thinking. And finally, you know, a year later, uh, you rip the guy off or the woman off completely and you know, you can say, well, I had a revelation. But uh, what, this, what this particular um, theologian said, he said what, or Old Testament scholar really, he said what is happening here is that the Israelites under Aaron's, in, in Aaron's panic or hysteria, they have built a false image of the true God. Okay, a false image of the true God. It would be a lot easier for us to sit and condemn if they had built, uh, you know, pure, you know, idols, you know, that, uh, with, with a theology that came totally, completely from the pagan world. But here it's a lot trickier and slippery. Yes, true, uh, a false image of the true God. And that false image of the true God is very dangerous. And it is also a form of idolatry. And it says in our passage that the people sat down, they began to feast, yes, and they began to engage in revelry. And uh, the word revelry there in Hebrew is immorality. And then in the next verse, we read that they were corrupt. Uh, and the word for corruption is the same word that's used uh, by God to describe you know, the human race uh, before the flood. So idolatry, as it always does, brings immorality. Idolatry and immorality, you might say they're kissing cousins. And uh, they go together like Baseball and popcorn, cricket and cucumber sandwiches, um, the building industry and corruption. You know, this is, uh, uh, this is how we, the, the pattern that we see in the Bible and of course, uh, of course we see it here, yeah. And um, the invitation you know, that God gave to them, you know, to, tr- to trust him. Now this is after God has brought them across the sea, given them manna, given them water, done miracles on the mountain. So many, so dramatic that the people of Israel say, we don't wanna talk to God. Moses, you go talk to him on our behalf. Yes. Very easily. Very easily, yes, the people panic because there's no leader. There somehow the religious system uh, is turned upside down. And isn't that interesting? Yes, the leader goes away. The leader is found to be corrupt. The leader dies, whatever. It, and where is the faith of people? It's so often in a, in a person. It's not in God or it's in some kind of religious system. 
And by the way, a religious system or a ritual or a theology, all these things can be good. A leader can be good if they are, if they are a bridge to God. Yes, if they're leading us, you know, to the Lord and not leading us away. But once a personality or even a religious system or a theology gets in the way, it's time for us to, to push that. And finally, we have one more, one more story and a few conclusions. Yes, the story is the parable. The parable that we find in Matthew 22. This parable is uh, a little complicated because it seems to be two parables uh, put into one. Uh, but nevertheless, Jesus starts off the parable um, saying the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And this, Jesus does this with about 50% of his parables. 50% of the parables are tied to the kingdom of heaven because the way that Jesus understands the kingdom of heaven is so rich. Yes, and it has sometimes overlapping meanings at the best way. Yes, the best way to illustrate it is to illustrate it through stories. And so we have a story of a king who gives a banquet. He sends his servants out, but the people who are on the A list, yes, uh, the, the number one folks, they refuse, uh, they refuse to come. Now that was bad enough, but uh, to make it worse, they commit an act of treason. They kill the king's servants. They kill the servants of the king. And so the king, of course, is angry and he brings, he brings punishment. He's enraged, it says. It says, and then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the street and they invited, they gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. The wedding hall was filled with guests. And then the king came to, to see the guest and he noticed the man was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get here without the wedding clothes? The man was speechless. And so before I just make some practical suggestions, let me just emphasize that accepting the invitation to the banquet, yes, is essential, but it's not enough. Because once we get in, yes, there is still obligation. There is still obligation. And so what are the practical, you might say, you know, how, how do we deal with these things practically? Let's say the first, Psalm 23. Psalm 23, yes, again, it's a matter of trust. What if we're in the position that we, like we can't trust? Maybe it's our fear of the future or that anxiety that somehow gets in the way. What should we do? We should simply ask for more faith. Faith is a gift and we can ask God to increase that faith. 
Now, once we do, we can be sure that uh, the faith that God gives us will be tested. First, so that we can see what is in our heart. And secondly, so that in the process of being tested, our faith can become, will become stronger and will become strengthened. In the book that uh, some of us are reading in our home group, a book by Dallas Willard, uh, he talks about Psalm 23. In fact, the book is called Life Without Lack. And he mentions that many times that we come to the Lord, it's out of desperation because some trouble or some trauma is happening in our life. And yes, God meets us in our desperation, but he doesn't want us to have this desperate faith all our lives. He wants us that faith uh, to increase and our confidence and assurance in him, yes, to become, to become, you know, uh, to be realized or actualized more and more in our life and that it will become uh, an assurance that we have, not a desperation. And what about, let's skip for a moment, Isaiah 25. What do we say to those folks who in their hysteria and fear and panic, yes, they built a golden calf. Rolf Jacobson, that's his name. Lutheran. We, we're no different because many times we, as believers, often have, yes, the wrong image of the true God. And our tendency, the human tendency, is to make God in our image, to make him look like us. Isn't it ironic when God says, I'm gonna make human beings in my image, and human beings said, no, wait a minute, God, we're gonna make you in our image. I'm gonna make you look like me. I'm gonna make you look like my culture. I'm gonna make you look like, you know, my political views. We do it. It's a human tendency. <clears throat> it is, a, an, it is a, something that every generation does. So in my short lifetime, short miserable lifetime, I can remember in the 1960s when Jesus was like a hippie. And he drove a VW van van that said, stop war, pull out of Vietnam, peace, love. And he wore beads and he went to to Grateful Dead concerts. And then in the 70s, Jesus, because the culture's changing, he became a therapist. You know, he, he became your best friend. He, he would call you into his office and say, sit on my couch and tell me why you have problems with your mother. <clears throat> and he would take notes and say, everything's gonna be fine. And then Jesus becomes like a businessman and a capitalist because he wants us to be efficient and make money for his kingdom. And then Jesus is, you know, this and that. It just, it goes on. And Jesus, he supports my political party. 
and he supports my political views. My dear friends, if, if we study the Bible seriously and it does not challenge us politically, then something's wrong with the way we're reading the Bible. And let's get rid of all this left-wing, right-wing stuff. The whole world is now using this category of left-wing, right-wing. This stuff was only invented 200 years ago with the French Revolution. And it is not adequate enough to talk about our life in God or to talk about the scripture. So what's the solution to this? The solution is to make sure that we are nurtured Yes, that our soul is fed and enriched, how? By the scripture, by the Eucharist, the sacrament, by practicing the presence of God. Yes, by practicing the, practicing the presence of God and not by YouTube or Netflix. So in our fellowship, our worship together, by the way, we want to make sure that our imaginations are cleansed, yeah? And uh, those places, those broken places in our lives, yeah, those places that we oftentimes get hung up with people, especially our family, they're not the, uh, those, uh, that brokenness is not determining, yes, or not uh, setting the context of our relationship with God. And for that, we need healing. But the healing starts with making sure that we are well nurtured. And finally, yeah, what about the, the guy who didn't come dressed properly for the wedding? He accepted the invitation, but obviously he wasn't serious. And I hope that speaks to many of us. This is not just one guy. He's a class or type of person that we all know well, and sometimes it even could be us. It's a type of person that kind of takes all of this for granted. It's not very serious. It's like, I'm saved. Yeah, I've been baptized. I tithe. I go to church a few times a year. But it's not really something that uh, really commands or demands my attention or my allegiance. And there's a long Christian tradition of understanding uh, that the man who came not properly dressed, they understood that uh, he, he came, uh, that he was someone who, who could talk, a nice talk, but really at the end of the day, yes, he hadn't, he really didn't accept the invitation. He, may, he maybe did uh, in a superficial way by saying, uh, saying so with his lips. He doesn't accept, he does, he's not the one who can trust. He doesn't enter into that dependent relationship with the Lord. And further, he has no good deeds because most, of, most Christian commentators have understood, you know, that he comes without some form of uh, a good works or good deeds. And if you are worried about this and you think, wait a minute, he, this, this is about earning your salvation, I think even Calvin, John Calvin said about the, this particular verse or particular parable, he said, 
Yes, it's good deeds, and why are we separating faith and good works? Meaning they, they simply, one leads to another. And ultimately, if you don't have good works, you obviously don't have faith. You don't have faith. So the, these are the challenges. Yes, God is good, and he's gracious, and he invites each one of us we need to accept that invitation. And the invitation has to go further than just saying yes, yes, yes. Yes, we cannot show up unprepared, you know, for the wedding feast. Uh, we cannot show up uh, and uh, sort of live any way we want to and say it's all okay because I'm at the banquet. This is what the Lord uh, is telling us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we do not want to be those who are full of fear and anxiety. And we pray that uh, you will indeed be our shepherd. We pray that you will be our host and that we can eat from the lavish banquet that you provide. Father, we pray that you'll free us from the fear of death, that you'll nourish us with the scripture and the Eucharist, with your presence and with worship. And Lord, we pray that none of us will neglect such a great salvation, that we will not neglect the state of our souls, but uh, we pray that uh, we will take our relationship with you with the utmost seriousness we pray that uh, we will live lives that are pleasing to you and honorable to you. And we ask all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.